This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk computing, technology, the internet, space, uh, anything in between. It's a, it's a big remit. Um, tonight on the show, uh, you are joined by Mr. Dan Salmon in the flesh in the studio. Good evening. I'm not a, I'm not a hologram tonight. You're not Normally a, I am. Not a hologram. There's not a big D on your forehead. I can attest to that. <laughs> well done. Uh, have you had a good week in technology? How's it? Oh, uh, look, you? it's been a middling week in technology. Uh, my my battle with the unnamed uh, email server at my job continues apace. Oh. But um, yeah, look, it, as, as far, outside of that, I'm 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 having an all right week. I'm finally te- forcing myself to learn how Snapchat works, oh. which you know I'm well behind the times. But I don't use it enough to even care. But it's it's one of those things where I feel like I probably should just play around with it a bit more. Um, judge me if you must, but you know what? I don't care. <laughs> That's progress. Uh, puppy faces coming to you soon, uh, friends of Dan. So many. Uh, I'll be with you also. Uh, I'm Warren Davies. Um, it's fair to say that reality is becoming a subjective term these days and we'll be spending more and more of our time with a mix of the physical world, augmented reality and virtual reality. Uh, in Melbourne, Acme are doing a, opening a new space uh, with a focus on mixed reality uh, and the new Chief Experience Officer, Seb Chan, uh, will be here in a few minutes to share with us how our reality uh, will change here in Melbourne in coming years. We'll also be talking a, a little on security uh, in news in a sec, but uh, one person who's doing more than most to create a, a safe web environment uh, is Let's Encrypt. One of the founders, uh, Josh Oos, uh, will talk through his work a little later in the show, um, both at Let's Encrypt and elsewhere. But before we get to that, we do have some news that we wanted to put in your ears. And one of the things that did catch uh, our eye is um, what's happening in China. Dan, what's what's the go there? Well, it's 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 kind of it's interesting. It's fascinating. It's also a, a little bit scary. Um, there's a, there's a new book out, and I'm just uh, right now trying to find the name of the author and the title. Uh, it's called "Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Might Drive Us Apart" by Rachel Botsman. Uh, we'll tweet out a link to that. But essentially, it's talking about a, a new system that is coming up in China known as uh, the social credit system. Now, uh, if we go back to June. 2014, the state council in China uh, published uh, a document called the planning outline for the construction of a social credit system. It sounds good though, like, it, you it know, does. social credit, like, it we, does. All, we all want credit. We all want credit, except when we're talking about essentially monitoring every interaction that you have, similar to a financial credit score, whereby if you, you know, default on your loans or uh, if you are particularly good at paying them back, uh, it gets recorded and used uh, in future dealings with credit providers. Um, this is something that is, it, it's possible that it's going to go a lot further than that, where, whereby it's going to be um, following your interactions with uh, on, online, your interactions with other businesses, uh, even your interactions with people generally, uh, and assigning you a credit score based on your, your trustworthiness. Um, it's uh, Obviously, uh, we've seen in recent years, months and years, uh, a big crackdown in China on things like corruption. So you can see where this is kind of coming from. But it's almost getting to the point where um, people are going to be surveilling themselves and surveilling each other on the off chance that being associated with some, I mean, with someone else 
will bring your credit score down. It's a very it's a very long and dense uh, article, and I, I, we won't unpack it entirely here. Safe to say that um, there is a, a a trial undergoing under being undertaken at the moment um, with some of China's biggest businesses, including Alibaba and uh, the companies that own uh, WeChat and the other big Chinese uh, social media companies, whereby uh, people are having their interactions. Um, I suppose monitored and and scores applied or credit scores applied based on these interactions and and it's being gamified in an interesting way whereby if you're you know if your trustworthiness goes up according to these particular I think eight businesses that have been chosen um, then you get perks you might get you know uh, you don't have to spend money or pay a deposit on hiring a car or you might get to the front of the queue when you're checking in at the airport or one interesting thing is that um, if if the the kind of holy grail of this appears to be getting a visa to the Schengen area which is the part of the EU where you don't actually need to, or the European Union sorry where you don't have to show a passport to move between countries. So it's 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 an interesting idea. Um, it's it's a little bit worrying that uh, it's the the intention is for so once this trial is complete, for it to move from a, a business based uh, system to the government based system by 2020. So we're looking at a very interesting uh, space for citizens of China in coming years. Um, but I mean, we, we, ne- we need to be honest here, China isn't necessarily known for not doing this kind of thing anyway. So it, it, it's almost like a, the next step of, uh, of uh, human surveillance, but people are policing themselves and getting free flights out of it. Interesting. Hmm. Um, we did notice uh, another item where uh, people were unfortunately policing themselves. Um, I noticed a uh, piece on um, ABC Today about um, a lot of us have used the uh, tracking apps for um, Find Your Phone and similar services. Um, you know, things like smartphones are expensive um, devices, so if you do lose them, you do want to um, get a hold of them um, again. Um, one of the um, uh, oh, a journalist um, using one of the services actually discovered that um, it was a good idea to do a documentary uh, about um, tracking his phone and himself. He did it over the course of a year, um, a Dutch journalist. Um, so a few other journalists got onto it as well and they have actually... Um, uh, decided to film themselves for a day and um, I guess get a feel for what you can actually do. Um, it, tr- it activated their camera, um, recorded their voice um, uh, and friends um, uh, with the mic, um, used location data. People were able to basically figure out um, uh, where they got coffee that day, um, where they stopped, where they worked, where they lived, all of those kinds of things. So um, it is when you think about it, it is actually custom built for, for tracking. So um, before you install it, um, there's a number of those apps that didn't actually specify which one it was. I'll see if I can figure out and, and tweet it out. But um, it's probably not a smart idea to have um, <laughs> this kind of software on your phone. Um, in particular, they said Android devices were particularly vulnerable um, to customization of some of these apps. So that is something that you do want to keep an eye on. Um, WhatsApp is doing better things with location sharing, though, aren't they? Well, yeah, this is true. Although it seems like it's going to be pretty. Um, I mean, if it gets hacked, then we're all then we're all ruined. But um, those of us who use WhatsApp, I know, I know that um, we were uh, discussing that um, before the show. Sorry, I've said it. Um, I don't particularly use Apple a lot, except when I'm communicating with people overseas. And in certain parts of the world, it's it's the uh, suppose the communications platform of choice. It's uh, it it's big uh, claim to fame, despite the fact that it's owned by Facebook, is that it is completely uh, untraceable and com- and completely secure. 
having said that, they've now included a new feature, um, which is an extension to the existing feature of uh, sharing your location. You can actually choose to share your ongoing location for a period of time on WhatsApp. So if you're in a big group of people who are chatting and you're all planning on meeting at a particular pub Mm. or whatever, maybe you're at a festival, it, it happens, you lose everyone, you can choose to share your continuing location for, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes so that people can track where you are and how long it's going to take you to get to the place where you're going. Oh, nice. It's an interesting idea. I, I, I like it. Um, I feel it's a little bit kind of... I'm, I'm the kind of guy who might be a little bit generous with the where I am and how long it's going to take me to get there. So, you know, if, if, if I know it's going to take me half an hour, I'll say 20 minutes. If I'm sharing this kind of thing, people are going to be like, well, no, it's definitely going to take you at least half an hour, mate. You're lying to us. So I may not be using it myself, but um, it's, 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 an interesting, uh, it's an interesting idea. I'll, I will also be interested to know how much of your data and your battery it's going to be using if you're continually yeah. sharing your location. I would suspect it would be quite a drain. I'm really, um, I'm quite careful about that for for no good reason. Well, actually, I I do have a reason which I might share at a Mm. later date, but um, I'm pretty careful about sharing my location where I am. Like if I'm posting stuff, it's generally a little bit later. Like I'll try and save something for an hour or two and then be at the next spot or something like that. Maybe I just watch too much Get Smart. Look, I I think it's perfectly reasonable to be be wary about that kind of stuff. Like I'm I'm not enormously comfortable with people knowing where I am exactly at any given point. And, you know, I'm sure that you can act, even though we might post it on, mm. you know, your socials an hour or two hours later, I'm sure there's mm. a way that they can track it back to say where you were. But like, yeah. you know, just that, that little bit of separation between your physical location and your online location is probably a good thing. It is. Um, another good thing is um, getting access to um, great academia um, from all time. Um, I've just been reading a little piece about how um, bizarre it is that we're so um, protective of um, uh, academic papers and research. Um, in, in some ways, it's comparable to sort of the Dead Sea Scrolls that we just kind of lock this stuff away and reading about um, academics putting their... I'd never heard of this, putting their PhD um, papers and, and theses um, in the fridge in case of fire to protect them. I've, I haven't heard of that either, but, I mean, it's it's that's interesting. I'm saying interesting a lot. Mm. The The... A lot of that I reckon is around the pub, the copyright ownership of uh, uh, academic papers. I mean, if you look into, uh, no one expect academics to have any food in the fridge. No, well, no, I w- I absolutely. They no kind of, they kind of. Well, they're not being paid. This is the <laughs> yeah. thing. Uh, let's let's not go into that particular mm. uh, Pandora's box. But mm. uh, academic or subscriptions to academic journals and that kind of thing are incredibly expensive. Mm. And even uh, some universities can't even afford to pay yeah. for for you know certain publishing rights to be able to actually give their students the papers that they are required to or, or the, that that mm. the students need to learn these mm. things. So. Um, well, for whatever reason that is, and a lot of it is copyright, mm. uh, it's very difficult to get academic papers. So mm. what, what's, what's changing there? So University of Cambridge uh, are now um, publishing uh, a lot of uh, works that were previously unavailable through their um, Apollo um, Digital Open Access Repository. Um, one of the first ones they're releasing is um, Stephen Hawking's uh, groundbreaking 1966 PhD thesis, uh, which is now freely available online. Uh, Properties of expanding universes will be your new late night reading. Um, <gasps> regale your friends and partners uh, with tales of black holes, uh, past <laughs> and present. Um, if you have read A Brief History of Time, it is great. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm no PhD student and I'm no um, uh, physics graduate, but it was it was great and very easy to understand and, and follow and um, very mind-expanding um, in, in many ways. But um, 
I think it's great that um, they're now opening up and uh, publishing stuff that, I mean, it's it's widely acknowledged science. Um, people are basing a lot of work on it, so there's no reason for it to be um, kind of hidden away under lock and key. Absolutely. So it's great. Um, pip, pip to Cambridge University for doing that. That's hoping other universities follow their lead. Absolutely. Hey, uh, as the end of the year gets closer, uh, you might find yourself leaving work a little bit earlier to get out and socialise. Um, I do like to get to an event around this time of year and um, one of the places I like to do that is at ACME. Um, there's been lots of fun stuff already this year that um, Byte has got along to. Um, one of the new places where we might be getting along to is Future Lab. And uh, to talk to us about that, we are joined in studio by Chief Experience Officer at ACME, Seb Chan. Seb, thanks for coming in tonight. Thanks, heaps. Uh, have you been a, a fan of Acme for long? Like, what's what's been your favourite part uh, of Acme before? Well, I've, I only relocated to Australia at the end of 2015, so I'm new to Melbourne. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I used used to be many years ago in Sydney and I used to come down for the shows when it just launched and mm. see all those media art things, or mm. what used to be called new media art now. Oh, yeah. Uh, then, uh, don't know really what uh, sort of we call it now. Di- digital art, I guess, or yeah, yeah, it sounds about interactive right. Interactive media, so it's everywhere yeah. around around us. Yes. So you know, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great, great place, and I think um, the opportunity to showcase some of the new things out in the world and and to reduce that gap be- between the space, the the time that it takes for museums to do things, mm. it's part of what we really work work working on hard because we see these the. Museum is as an opportunity to present the near future mm. as it happens, mm. and you know the exhibition cycle is usually two, three years planning ahead. Mm. And as we think about redeveloping the Federation Square site, uh, this notion that we need to be able to test emerging media, mm-hmm. emerging tech, tech technologies, and do smaller scale experimental things is uh, really critical to us. So set up a new thing called the Future Lab. Um, it's about uh, it's a small small gallery space uh, where some uh, people m- may remember a thing called the MediaTek, which, which was a series of booths for viewing uh, videos from the NFSA and from our collection. Those videos and such are now now available in other places throughout the building. So we've relo- so we've taken that space and created a space where we can have pop ups. If you could just line it up with beer deluxe, that'd be really yeah, amazing. I think, like you know, we could. Well, it'd be great to bring beers in, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe in the future, maybe all these things. <laughs> Emerge, you know. <laughs> Who knows? Interesting. Um, so, when Acme put it out there that this was the kind of space you were thinking about, mm. was um, where did most interest come from? Was it a, a commercial thing, or were um, uh, sort of Melbourne's games community or development community interested in using it as well? Was uh, it's very, very that? much a mix. I mean, I think what what we have in there now is an AR app that that allows you to uh, design your living spaces and to uh, use AR to um, uh, get scale 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 models of furniture within your uh, spaces. Um, that's a p- part- partnership with IKEA that, that runs for a couple a couple of weeks. Runs till um, November seven. But the next um, thing we'll be doing in there is is a two two week sprint around preserving a piece of di- digital art from the nineteen nineties that is in our collection. But uh, we have to underpack and get all the computers out of the store storerooms and boot up you know Windows ninety five and see if it still <laughs> runs and get all those things working. And so that sort of idea about using it as a space to make digital preservation visible to, to people uh, is also a thing and then it may spin off into some other prototypes that we're uh, thinking of with arti- with artificial intelligence and other things like that. But it is that, that sort of moment where we see the broad audiences that we get through the building um, 
to to be exposed to things that they may have only seen in Black Black Mirror that is actually getting much closer to our present reality than perhaps with thought. Uh, it's a little terror, terrifying at times, in fact. So the um, I, I I guess in some ways that alludes to the uh, make room for life um, yeah. idea and um, that we are sort of headed um, very quickly for that mixed reality space. Yeah. What what, what, what would you think um, is not a fiction and not um, something that's unexpected for us in the next few years from shows like Black Mirror when you look at sort of what they introduce? I mean, I think most, I mean, I've, I've you know, I've been watching that show since the early series pre-Netflix and it's it's fascinating to see that there's about, that there's a reducing horizon for that show from what you used, you used to be 24 months to now about six months. And so... Uh, I'm a little scared that the next series is about to drop and it's it's so close. Like, you know, that, that very first episode with the British Prime Minister did and I the miss pig. That? Did, did that happen? I, uh, I hope that like happened. Then suddenly yeah. it happened. No, that so actually well, did happen. happen. No, it did happen. Yeah. Yeah, well, and then, yeah. you know... Uh, <laughs> we don't talk about David Cameron anymore. No, okay. no. And then, you know, we have the all the AR things and, and you you guys were just speak, speaking about the China and the tracking and the mm. so, social credit rating, you know, that, that was in the last series. So, you know, I, I think... It's really fascinating. I think also as a museum of the um, moving image, what would it be like to do an exhibit of Black 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 Mirror itself? Like, what would that be? Could be kind of cool, right? Get in touch, touch with Charlie Brooker and uh, find out. Maybe a guest uh, curator. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so, in in terms of um, uh, what, what your plans are for the space for Future Lab, sure. what 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 sort of things can people expect to see there over the next six months or a year? What so. With so I think people will ex- should expect to see the opportunity to play test some video games that are in development. Our uh, Codebreaker show that's on at the moment uh, is finishing up soon too, but we will see uh, video games being te- tested in that space. You'll also begin to to see some of the plans that we have for the new museum that we're building within the site. You'll begin to see prototypes from the, from the, from that emerging. So. Can't really say what those are yet, but there's a lot of pretty exciting things coming up there, and it'll be little pop-ups where we test an idea, perhaps for just just a weekend. And if you happen to be in the building, uh, we may pull you into a booth and say, "Can you tell us what what you think of this idea?" And maybe press some uh, buttons on this thing, and did it do what what you thought? Through to uh, as we see here, con- uh, consumer tech technologies where we're trying to give people that first kind of touch experience and contextualise it within within the sense of other media experiences. So the IKEA experience is very similar to uh, that opening se- sequence of uh, Fight Club as well. Mm. And so drawing the, um, those connections but between that and now what, what you can do through, through your phone is interesting. And what it may uh, mean for... Um, uh, retail in the mm. uh, future and mm. that sort of pre pre shopping experience that mm-hmm. I think um, retailers really struggle with. But now mm. new tools are allowing us to do other things. I, I do uh, note that um, in the 2017-18 Victorian budget, they have put aside a, a chunk of change to um, support the state's green offering uh, with funding um, moving to places such as um, ACME. Mm. Um, can you tell us anything about how that funding is able to sort of more broadly update the, the tech sure. experience at ACME? Yeah, so, uh, so we we received $500 million in the state budget to uh, to do the concept design and design, de- uh, de- uh, design development phase of a much, much larger uh, piece of work that will um, uh, 
uh, see see the entire museum trans, 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 transformed in the next few years. It's very exciting, um, and that is a re reimagining of all of these spaces and the stories that the museum needs to. To tell, if you mm. look at the screen, screen world's gallery at the moment, that that uh, gallery launched in two thousand and nine, just as uh, the iPhone three appeared. Yeah. And I think when that exhibition was cur curated, it was very ahead of its time. Uh, but it also didn't uh, predict the transformative effect that the phone would have. Mm. It's really a pre pre mobile exhibit, and mm -hmm. and and the sense that. Uh, the world has changed in many, many ways from, uh, you know, uh, from ISIS, the Arab um, Spring to fake to fake kind of news, the way we watch television and consume media to 4K recording and mm. video on our phones and devices mm. and, the, and the ability to publish and share those. So all of that is post where, that, where the exhibitions currently end. And mm. so we're taking this opportunity to really reimagine re the museum and uh, develop a museum that can deliver on those new literacies that we need, that, that, those mm. critical literacies around screen literacy, media literacy, di digital literacy, that at the bedrock of a, a, a democracy mm. in many, many, many ways, which means the museum needs to become a place that is much more connected with what's going on right mm. right now in Melbourne as well. Mm -hmm. uh, makers that are making great art and making great tech technology, uh, creative tech technology in Melbourne and also um, uh, building a critical sensibility around uh, that. What is what is the equivalent of a cinema for video mm -hmm. games? Mm -hmm. What is the equivalent of a cinema for mixed reality or virtual reality? Mm -hmm. um, those, those are the kind of uh, conceptual que questions we're mm -hmm. bouncing around in the office at the moment, which is a mm -hmm. very, very, very exciting moment. I think the Future Lab is also a space where the public can engage with some of the discussions we're having and we mm -hmm. really welcome uh, as the Future Lab grows, the, the opportunities mm. for the public to get engaged with the things we're talk, talking about mm. and the changes we're trying to make because this is, it should be a co-design piece. It's a collaborative mm. piece, yeah. Interesting. Uh, you have spent a little bit of time at uh, other similar institutions uh, mm. around the world. I, I think you did a stint at the Smithsonian as yeah, well for a little while. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I uh, was working in New York helping them uh, rebuild and relaunch the Design Museum in New, uh, New York. So mm. got hired, hired over by uh, you know, Bill, uh, Bill Mogridge, a famous British uh, designer who designed the laptop. The reason your mm. lap laptop opens the way it does mm -hmm. is because of Bill. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we were really trying to rethink what a design mu museum could could be and should be there. And mm. I acquired things like an app for the Smithsonian. So the first app in the Smithsonian's collection uh, mm. was collected during my, my time there, which which talks about digital preservation and this sort of thing that what was built for, I, I, for iOS 6. Mm. What does that mean mm. in 50 years' time? Mm. What, what does it mean to collect an app? Mm. Uh, why does it matter? Uh, so, you know, I think that that's also starting to inform some of the work here. What should a museum of the moving image actually be about now? Mm. Given that we're surrounded by moving images and and um, we make moving images, should mm. we collect GIFs? Mm. What is the quintessential oh. Melbourne GIF, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not all of them, please. Not all of them, please. No, yeah. right. <laughs> that's what curators are for, right? For sure. Um, so, if people are interested in, in um, checking out Future Lab, mm. what, what can they do at the moment? So, Future, Future, Future Lab's free. It's open uh, between twelve and five. It's on the uh, the Federation Square floor. Mm -hmm. It's free, and I would encourage people to visit the other parts of the museum and pop into Future Lab on their way in or out. I mean, the Future Lab is is a pop up experience. It's not something. Um, 
that is, uh, it's it's a prototyping space. Mm. So it's a space that as you come and see the other exhibitions that we have on, it's great to pop into. Mm. Uh, we also have a new virtual reality lounge up the back of Screen, Screen Worlds now, which has mm. uh, Vertov's the, the tuning, 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 tuning Forest, a great mm -hmm. VR, VR work um, that works with sound, uh, mm -hmm. uses sound as part of its uh, storytelling de uh, developed in Melbourne mm -hmm. for, the, uh, for the BBC. Great. I'm going to go down and check it out. So, again, this is all free. Come on down. It sounds good. Uh, hey, if you are concerned about your um, uh, internet activities and you are worried about uh, what's going on out there and who's watching you, um, you probably have good reason to be. Um, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> Wow, we've, we've got some news for you guys. We do Be scared. For you. Be scared. Um, one of the people uh, doing something about that and one of the organisations is Josh Ouse from uh, Let's Encrypt. Um, it's a free automated and uh, open certificate authority uh, run for the public's benefit. Um, they've actually just, uh, I think, um, delivered their 100 millionth um, certificate. Um, so they actually provide the digital certificates that allow um, uh, web de destinations to um, enable uh, HTTPS um, and uh, SSL certificates and so forth. Um, so it's a way for all of us to browse the web um, in uh, a measure of security. Um, Laura Summers, uh, who you will listen to many a time on the show, um, caught up with Josh recently and they had a bit of a chat about uh, security and uh, we're going to pick up that conversation now. This is a Skype chat, so you might hear a few um, beeps and whizzes. I am speaking to Josh Ose from Let's Encrypt. Um, he's based in the US and he is coming on to bite into it to talk about this organization. Thank you so much, Josh, for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm really interested in this organization and particularly like the drive behind it to try and help people get the web encrypted. So let's just start at the beginning. Like, can you tell me about how it all got started for you? Sure. I worked for Mozilla for a long time before I started Let's Encrypt. Mozilla is the organization that makes the Firefox web browser. And we wanted to make a really secure browser and, and protect our users. But a lot of websites weren't using encryption or HTTPS. And there really wasn't a lot that we could do about that from the browser side of things. Sites just needed to switch and until they did, people would be vulnerable. So we started thinking about, you know, why don't sites switch or what can we do to make it easier for sites to switch to HTTPS? And my coworker, Eric, and I sort of came to the conclusion that the most difficult thing for people to, to get their website over to HTTPS was getting and managing SSL certificates. And these are these little digital certificates that you need in order to turn on HTTPS or turn on encryption. And these certificates are issued by certificate authorities and we thought a lot about how we might make it easier. And we came to the conclusion that we just needed to start a new CA that did things differently. And one thing that needed to be done differently was that the certificates needed to be free. Yeah. So unless they were free, there's always going to be this toll that people have to pay to get the kind of security that the web should just have by default. I just wanted to ask for people who don't know, can you explain the acronym CA? Yeah, CA is a certificate authority. It just means an organization that's able to issue these digital certificates. So depending on where you are in the world, it, you know, even a small price to, to pay can be difficult. So we really needed these certificates to be free. We also needed to make them really easy to get. 
so that they don't require too much technical knowledge or too much time and investment, right? So Mm -hmm. some people just don't have the technical knowledge. And for those who do, you know, time is money. So the more time it takes to do something, the less likely you are to do it. So maybe even more important than the free issue is to make it really easy to do so that people aren't afraid of this task or, you know, that everyone has the time to do it. So we decided we need to start a new CA that made things free and easy, and that's what we did. And a little ways into doing that, so this, you know, a little ways into doing that, we realized that people from EFF and the University of Michigan were also interested in this kind of project, and we invited them to join us, and we've had a great collaboration ever since. Yeah, great. So those were pretty lofty goals, like trying to make them free and also make the whole experience usable and accessible, um, I think really important goals as well. Can you speak a little bit to why it's been a little bit more of a technical task or why it's been maybe a little bit less easy for people to um, get that job done in the past? Yeah. So one of the biggest reasons it's difficult is there's a huge diversity of environments out there. So when you set up a website, you might set up your website in a different way than somebody who's, you know, sets up a different website. Maybe you use one type of server software or somebody else uses a different type. And depending on how you set your website up, the process is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So that right there, you know, that sort of diversity in environments makes things really difficult. uh, The onus is on the people to um, be able to deal with all those different kinds of environments. Yeah, well, you get a certificate from a certificate authority, but then you need to know what to do with it. And that's where the environment comes in. So once you even manage to get a certificate, then you have to know what to do with that, how to set it up with your server software and how to switch everything over to HTTPS using that certificate. But even getting the certificate can be quite a pain. So, you know, historically it's sort of been a joke how difficult it can be to get from a certificate from certificate authorities typically have to make it well first you have to know that you even need a certificate right and then you need to google around and figure out where do you get these things and then there's a whole bunch of confusing options and they all use different marketing terms and there's slightly different kinds of certificates so you've got all sorts of decisions that you need to make before you even start the process of buying one and then when you buy one it you know it can be frustrating to go through the payment processes You have to go through a validation process to get a certificate. So if you want a certificate for a particular domain name for your website, you need to demonstrate that you control that domain. And there's been a whole lot of different ways in which CAs might ask you to demonstrate that. They might ask you to set up an email account. They might ask you to make some phone calls. Um, It can be a lot of work, and it can be different for every CA. Yeah. And once you go through this process, you know, then you get a certificate from them. And like I said, you got to figure out how to install that on your system, which can be quite a pain. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of sort of bureaucracy and can, can involve a lot of money. In some places in the world, there aren't really very good CA options, right? There aren't commercial options where you can just go buy a certificate very easily. Um, We sort of take that for granted and, and, countries like where I live in the United States, there's tons of options for for where you can buy something, but that's not true everywhere. So for some places in the world, even availability is an issue. Mm -hmm. So this is all a lot of work for people. And it's a big reason why the web is not much more secure than it is today. Mm. 
I didn't know that there was difficulty even securing a certificate in some countries. Um, is that just because they don't have big enough markets for organizations to move in there and um, make them available, or is there anything else going on? Yeah, that could be the case. In other cases, it has more to do with um, political and legal issues. Mm. For example, if you are a shop owner in Iran, right, and you want to get a certificate to protect your your business, a lot of certificate authorities in the world won't do business in Iran, right? Yeah. So I, I'm not entirely clear on what the options within Iran in particular would be, but I've heard, for example, that it is very difficult. That the options in the past have not been very good. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And that's that's really would hamper anyone whose you know desire is to make some kind of internet product or who wants to you know trade in any way in the information economy like that's that really seems like um a big disadvantage to people coming from those countries that wouldn't have um good or as many services available to get a ca you ask what makes moving to HTTPS difficult Mm. the answer can be quite different depending on where in the world that you are sure so one of the things about the new certificate authority that we wanted to set up was we wanted to make sure that it was global so that we're available in every single country in the world and that the experience is consistent in every place. And I think we've achieved that. That was a really important goal. I'd like to zoom out a little bit just to talk about why it is people should even care about this? Like why, why is it important to have a certificate and encrypt web traffic? Like um, that, that may seem obvious to some of us in tech, but I think, you know, for many people, it's just like, ah, well, you know, Sure, but what's in it for me or why should I care? Yeah, so we hear from a lot of people who say, well, the information on my website is not very important or sensitive. There's no credit cards, there's no health information, there's no, you know, your address isn't on here. It's not very important information, so why do I need to encrypt this? There are a couple of reasons. I think, you know, encryption helps protect the data that's flowing between a visitor and a website that they're visiting. So first of all, there might be sensitive information. That could be obvious, like you could be typing in your credit card, but it can also not be so obvious. So the web has become a very complex system. When you visit a web page, there's thousands of lines of code executing in your browser on even the most simple web page. It's probably you know integrated with social networks and ad networks and all sorts of stuff. And even though you're looking at a web page that might seem very simple in the background, it's probably not simple at all. It's hard to say how much of your information is being sent even on a very simple site, right? Like there can be tracking tracking cookies for ad networks and you don't notice the ad in the corner, but now your information, you know, related to that tracking cookie is being sent in the clear. So I think even for things that look simple, they can be surprisingly sensitive. And the way the web works today, it's just not it's not realistic for someone to sit down on every single website and look at every aspect of what's going on and say, well, this is sensitive and I care about this and this isn't and I don't care about that. There's just way too much going on. Mm. And the only rational response to that is just to say, okay, you know what? We're going to protect everything. And then we're not going to have to worry about the question of whether it's sensitive or not. It's all just going to be protected and then we'll be fine. Right? Yeah rather than putting the onus on the person using using the site to actually like decide what they care about or don't care about being encrypted. 
Yeah, it's just not it's not reasonable to ask people to make those decisions mm. constantly anymore. They're they're not gonna know mm. when exactly something is sensitive and it isn't. So we need to, you know, websites need to protect them. Mm. They shouldn't have to make that decision. And then even when they, even when things really are as simple as they might seem, a lot of really simple information can be combined together. So if you collect a lot of seemingly individually unimportant information about someone, maybe you can put it all together and learn something about them. So maybe if you know that they read one particular news article, it doesn't tell you that much. But if you know all the news articles they've read in the past month, you might be able to tell a lot about this person's political affiliations or interests or something like that. So even the stuff that really is not that important on its own can can be combined with other information to put together a surprisingly accurate picture of you or things going on in your life. Mm. And then one of the most overlooked things about why we need to encrypt all traffic is that Unencrypted traffic, not only can it be seen and collected by other parties, it can be modified. And this is where things get really dangerous. So even if you're visiting a very simple website that's just sending you some basic text, maybe about a birthday party or something, right? Yeah. If someone can access that data on the way to you, they can insert things. So they can insert malicious scripts or malicious programs that will then be sent to your computer and maybe executed in your web browser. So the, the potential for traffic to be modified is very dangerous and encryption stops the traffic from being modified as well. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I don't think people think about this that much that it's not just that it can be seen, but it can be modified. So if a web page is not encrypted, you can't even be sure that what you're looking at is what the web page sent you. The text might have been changed. Malicious programs could have been inserted into it. On the, on the more innocuous end of things, maybe merely annoying, people can insert ads into content that weren't there coming off the web server. Mm. And on the dangerous end, it can be malicious content. Mm. Yeah, I've seen, um, just working in web world, I've seen some of those kinds of fairly spammy and reasonably harmless injections, but it's still quite like surprising to find them. Like you'll find um, commented out text at the bottom of an HTML page that's like a bunch of spam ads for Viagra or something. And you're like, I didn't put that there. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's um, for people who, who don't maybe write code, it might be surprising to hear that um, people, that hackers or malicious um, entities can actually inject JavaScript or HTML between the server sending you that content and the client receiving those bytes. The thing I wanted to ask you about next was this change to Google Chrome, which happened in October. Um, they recently turned on a more strict form of security warning so that basically any traffic coming through them that's not an HTTPS site kind of turns up first time with a lot of red warnings and says, hey, are you comfortable going here to a non-encrypted web page? And uh, we do have a couple items uh, in the next few minutes uh, before Anthony Carew does come in for International Pop Underground. Um, do you like ramen, Dan? Are you a ramen? I'm I'm actually on the fence about ramen. Oh. I, I, I don't hate it. I don't love it. I'll have it when it's there, but I don't think I'm going to seek it out. You're down at the fur bar. Yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely... Fur bar? I'm not even sure. You know what? I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave okay. that. 
if you were uh, having some ramen, you might be interested in some noise-cancelling ramen forks. Um, <laughs> a company out there has decided that this is a great idea. Uh, it's controversial as sloping the noodles is a sign of respect for the chef and that you're enjoying your food. Um, but some people do get a little bit um, weird about it. I'm not a big one for like making lots of noise with my food. I find it a bit weird. Yeah, look, I've, I've, I've been known to do it and I have been told by many people to stop doing it. So it's it, for me, it's more of a kind of don't make people get angry with me thing rather than and I'm going to care Do too much. Yeah, definitely. One of the Japanese food manufacturers has come up with um, this idea. Um, they're marketing the uh, Otohiko ramen fork as a solution to the cultural friction uh, between those who love a good slip and those that don't. Um, they're actually trying to see if they can get it up um, almost with like a, a crowdfunding campaign in a way. Um, the way it works is it actually picks up um, uh, slipping noises um, through some mics and then plays some um, uh, music over the top of it. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's not playing like the, the reverse slurp, like with, with your standard noise cancelling headphones, it senses what the sound outside is and then plays the opposite um, wavelength to kind of cancel oh, it out. No. So, so this just it's like makes smothering. Really <laughs> smothering. Slip, slip smothering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. And I'm sure that <laughs> listening to smothering of like music over slurping noise would actually be the worst thing you've ever heard. <laughs> I think I've got that right. But oh, that sounds it disgusting. Look, it looks like a large, a large electric toothbrush as well. <laughs> oh, just, just to just to make everyone feel really comfortable about the fact that you're, what, so you're eating with something that looks like a pup, an electric toothbrush, making no, you're going to get kicked out of the restaurant. How is that Tinder date going to go? Do you think, Dan? <laughs> Swipe left. I think you can swipe left on anyone who's holding ramen forks in their hand. Maybe you want to see. Maybe you want to do something else uh, tomorrow night. You do have an option. You do have an option. Instead of going down to the ramen bar and making a spectacle of yourself with your noise cancelling uh, chopsticks, uh, you can go to the Software Art Thou series, which I think is one of the greatest names for a thing I've ever heard. Um, it's it's a series of talks uh, being hosted by Zendesk. Zendesk. Uh, my apologies. Uh, all about all aspects of software. So. Um, Throughout, you know, 40 years, the field of software engineering has produced little that was useful to the software practitioner. Um, so this has led to a really peculiar situation. We have a field where the set of practices referred to as engineering simply don't doesn't work well and are deliberately avoided by the vast majority of skilled practitioners in the field. I could continue reading this. Glenn Vandenberg is uh, vice president of engineering at FIRST, helping to uh, build transformative software for the real estate industry. And we'll be talking tomorrow night at uh, the Zendesk uh, head office in the city on Queen Street. Uh, if you it, you do need to register, but it is free. So if you wanted to head down to uh, hear a bit of talking about uh, the history and future of software engineering, I reckon it's probably uh, worth checking out. Just uh, one tiny little bit of news that I thought was good as well. Um, Albert Einstein, a, a note written by uh, he, um, has recently been sold for $1.5 million. Mm -hmm. And it's a promise going back to 1922 when he was on a tour in Japan, uh, a lecture tour, and um, he didn't have money for a tip um, for the courier. So he signed uh, a note. Albie signed a note describing his theory of happiness, um, explaining that he didn't have money for a tip, but if he was lucky, um, it might actually be worth some money uh, one day. Fast forward to 2017, and the note has um, been sold for $1.5 million. Uh, oh, that is incredible. Is it, was it the same owner the whole time? Um, I'm not sure, but the note did say uh, in German, a calm and humble life will bring more happiness than the pursuit of success and the constant restlessness that comes with it. Maybe he just wanted to get home and, and have some um, sauerkraut or something Quite like that. Quite possibly, but I think that's a really lovely uh, note to end the show on. 
Finish. A bit of philosophy for the evening. Mm. Anthony Carew coming up now. Uh, we've been right into it. Uh, thank you to our guests, Rick and Josh. We'll be back next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.